Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for tuning in to ADH TV. Now, remember this, we are the last line of defence for common sense viewpoints and are determined to represent your concerns when others in the media won't. Download the free ADH app on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Just search ADH and you can watch the show live or on demand on your TV by downloading ADH on your Apple TV or Google Play Store. It's all there so you'll never miss an episode. Tonight on the show, we'll talk with the brother of Julian Assange. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says he wants a conclusion to the Julian Assange matter. I couldn't agree more. We'll speak with the brother of the WikiLeaks founder. Queensland Senator Matt Canavan will join me. Can you believe that 11 National Party MPs were given gigs yesterday in the Shadow Ministry, but no room for Matt Canavan? Welcome to David Littleproud's National Party. I'm sure over the weekend, away from all of that rubbish. Many of you saw some of the scenes from the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrations. That's 70 years on the throne. Have a look at them in the mail. Unbelievable. And of course, this will never happen again. The four-day celebrations were nothing short of remarkable. An estimated 16,000 street parties. I can't get over those numbers. Look, you couldn't, you couldn't squeeze between them, could you? I mean, there were street parties, military bands, flyovers, music concerts, parades. It goes on and on. The 96-year-old has described the celebrations as deeply humbling. What a beautiful woman. Unfortunately, she had to withdraw from several events due to, quote, episodic mobility issues. On Saturday, her son, Prince Charles, paid a personal tribute outside Buckingham Palace when he said, quote, you pledged to serve your whole life. You continue to deliver. That's why we're here. You've met us and talked with us. You laugh and cry with us. And most importantly, You've been there for us for these 70 years. It's an amazing achievement. Well, what then are we to make of Australia's woke Governor-General David Hurley, who I might add had no hesitation going to London and sitting a few rows back from the Royals when he said, quote, a new discussion would be had once the Queen passes. What an appallingly insensitive thing to say, supposedly representing us. I'll tell you what, his comments don't represent me, here is a remarkable woman who's clearly not well. She's lost her husband. She's had that ridiculous grandson, Harry, and the wife. She's had the problems with Prince Andrew. And this is an appropriate and spectacular tribute to an extraordinary 70 years of service. And you've got Australia's Governor-General, David Hurley. They're always promoted from the army, mind you, saying when she goes, when she passes, then the succession comes in. There is a new discussion in Australia, unquote appalling comments in any circumstance, let alone in the celebratory environment of the weekend. Another Scott Morrison appointment, which is a dud. What do you think? Email me, alanjones at adh.tv. Now, as you know, I mentioned last week, this energy crisis is not going to go away. And now we've seen the predictable, the new climate and energy minister, Chris Bowen, laying the blame for the gas crisis at the feet of the coalition. Gas, of course, is a fossil fuel. Against that, we have the Federal Resources Minister, Madeleine King, a West Australian, formerly a commercial lawyer, saying at the weekend that as minister, 
she will never put a limit on how much coal Australia will export and that the Albanese government won't negotiate with the Greens over the Greens' push to end coal and gas development. She added that every Labor MP understood the importance of the industry. I'm not sure about that. But she went further to say that coal-fired power generation must step up to help reduce soaring energy prices. But if we hadn't demonised coal, of course, for so many years, and that includes the previous government, we wouldn't be facing soaring energy prices. You will know what she, Madeleine King, the new Federal Resources Minister, means by soaring energy prices when you go down to the letterbox and get your electricity and gas bill. All of this brings me to an article by Bernard L. Weinstein, Emeritus Professor of Applied Economics at the University of North Texas and the former Associate Director of the Maguire Energy Institute at Southern Methodist University. Now, he's writing about weather forecasters in America predicting a long, hot summer for most of the United States with significant implications for the nation's electric power grids. Now, this is what's happening in Australia, except for us, the problem is winter. Now, Professor Weinstein cites the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. It's the regulatory authority that oversees grid operations in America and Canada. And it's warned that the entire West and many areas of the Midwest face, quote, an elevated risk of insufficient electricity supply, unquote. And the corporation overseeing the grid talked about insufficient operating reserves of electricity. Well, he then asks, how do we get here? Because as he says, when production and consumption increase, the demand for electricity grows. But here's the guts of it. The professor writes, and I quote, the main culprit is the energy transition with its emphasis on weaning the power grid off fossil fuels, unquote. And he quotes the regulatory authority, that's the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, which says, quote, the premature retirement of baseload generating units such as coal and nuclear plants, combined with the intermittency of wind and solar as power sources, have seriously impaired grid resilience and reliability, unquote. Now, the same regulatory corporation that oversees the operation of the electricity grid had warned way back in 2018, and I quote, an accelerated retirement of coal-fired and nuclear plants could lead to power outages, temporary shortfalls in surplus generation and transmission problems, unquote. Now, remember, the professor is writing on May 24, a little over a week ago, and talking about, quote, significant implications for the nation's electricity power grids. And he makes this point because this is what the Greens and the Teals and others are aiming for, or even worse, and they've got many disciples in the Labor and Liberal parties, though Madeleine King, the Labor Resources Minister, offers some hope, but writes the professor, quote, since 2007, electricity output from the nation's fleet of coal plants has fallen by more than 50% displaced mainly by renewables, and now accounts for only 22% of generation, unquote. Now, they're talking about a looming crisis this summer in America over electricity supply. They've swallowed the global warming Kool-Aid and displaced coal and installed renewables. But, writes the professor, unlike wind turbines and solar panels, coal plants are always on, regardless of the time of day or the weather conditions. Coal plants, he writes, keep months of fuel on site, providing additional security and resilience to the grid. What is more, he says, 
natural gas-fired generation, which supplies about 40% of the electrons to the nation's power grids, has become much more expensive, unquote. And he alludes to the fact that the spot price for natural gas in recent months has nearly doubled. And then he says this, quote, the Environmental Protection Administration's agenda to accelerate coal plant closures has put our electric power grids and our economy at risk. He adds, what is more, the coal fleet is being pushed aside much faster than reliable alternatives can be incorporated into transmission networks, unquote. And then this, and I've been going on about this for I don't know how long, quote, eliminating policies that cause market distortions, such as the huge subsidies to wind and solar projects, would be one way to sustain baseload power generation. But because renewables have strong political support, those subsidies are likely to remain in place, unquote. As Professor Weinstein writes, unfortunately, the generation mix that has underpinned grid reliability and affordable electricity is currently under threat. A perfect storm of market failure and regulatory overreach in place of sound energy policy, unquote. That's America and that is us. We're not far behind. I've regularly called, as you know, this whole energy policy a national economic suicide note, and so it is. I certainly welcome the comments by Madeleine King, but it's to be hoped Labor are not speaking out of both sides of their mouth. Yeah, just before I go to Matt Canover, there's a story just in that Boris Johnson, in Britain they have this business where 15% of the elected members of the House of Commons, if they write to what they call the 1922 committee, and there's a lot of history about that, if that is 54, and if those letters are given to Sir Graham Brady, who's the chairman of the 22 committee, then there has to be a vote of confidence. The 54 letters are in. It's clear now that Boris Johnson will face a vote of confidence as to whether he should continue as leader and prime minister. Anyway, closer to home. And after all that we've been saying tonight, time for a dose of common sense based on scholarship in the form of the Queensland Senator Matt Canavan. What is sometimes forgotten about Matt Canavan is he's not only a Bachelor of Arts, and a Bachelor of Economics with Honours from the University of Queensland. He was a senior research economist for five years with the Productivity Commission and later a director and then a senior executive at KPMG before he entered Parliament. In February 2020, he resigned from the Cabinet to support Barnaby Joyce in his unsuccessful bid for the National Party leadership. He's a 42-year-old man of impeccable integrity. He joins me. Matt, thank you for your time. If I could just ask you a personal question, did you choose not to join the shadow ministry or did you, were you offered a gig and refused? Well, well Alan, I, I wasn't offered a gig and I wouldn't have accepted one anyway. I think it's common knowledge uh, among my colleagues that uh, I plan to keep up the fight against this green nonsense. Good uh, on you. Good unfortunately, on you. the uh, Liberal and National parties remain in hock wanting to support this uh, net zero global agenda. I don't think that's the right direction for our country. I think that's playing out right now in the energy markets right across Australia. It'll hit your electricity bills, your viewers' electricity bills. We're about to get a shock in the next few months, thanks to this net zero agenda. So I, I'm going to keep that fight up. I've, I've got some friends in the place, but yep. uh, for now, those friends and well, those, uh, those committed to this cause will have to do so outside the shadow ministry. You'll always have a forum here for that, I can tell you, simply because you're right. Can I just ask you, is the Albanese government already a bit schizophrenic? Now, Chris Bowen is saying he's not ruling anything in or out as they deal with this gas shortfall. Gas, of course, one of the fossil fuels that they seek to remove. You're from Queensland. The headline in the Courier-Mail 
Front Page Friday said, ALP warms to coal. Now, Madeleine King, the new Resources Minister, says she will never put a limit on how much coal Australia will export. Does that offer some hope? Well, Alan, there's always hope here. Uh, unfortunately, Chris Bowen himself has been a bit hopeless over the past few months. You remember, this was the guy during the election campaign only a few weeks ago was telling us all that coal's had its day, um, that uh, renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy. Have you heard that? How many times yes, have we heard that? Yeah. And if that's the case, why don't they just switch this stuff on? Why don't they just put a few solar panels up and it'll all be solved, won't it, according <laughs> to what they were saying? But they can't do that. Now they actually have the levers of power. Uh, they will be shown to have no clothes. The emperor will have no clothes because they can't guarantee us energy security based on solar panels and wind turbines alone. There's not enough batteries in the world uh, to back up this intermittent, unreliable power. As I say, Alan, uh, renewable energy is the doll bludgers of the energy network. They only turn up to work when they'd like to. Uh, they're not full-time. They don't work full-time on the clock for you or I. And we need to invest again in full-time power. So let's hope the likes of Madeleine King do win this debate. But I'm not going to hold my breath because the Labor Party are in hock to the Greens. They'll be in hock to the Teals uh, very soon. And haven't they been quiet the last week or two? Haven't heard much from them <laughs> about what they think about this rolling crisis we are seeing across our energy markets because we haven't invested enough in reliable power. Look, Madeleine King said at the weekend, West Australian, of course, that in relation to the coal and gas sectors, and I quote, the Labor Party acknowledges the role of these industries. There is, this is a bit, there's not a Labor member who doesn't understand that it is the resources industry that's the backbone of the economy. She then said it's always a contested place, but the main thing is we're committed to net zero emissions by 2050. Most of the country is, the community is, the mining and resources industry certainly is. Is. Matt, these goals are mutually exclusive, aren't they? That, that's the fundamental point, Alan. I'm glad you've raised that because, look, my side and some on my side are guilty of this problem too. We're trying to have our cake and eat it too. Life is about choices and we've got to make some hard choices here going into hard times. If we want to go for net zero emissions, well, we have to shut down our coal-fired power stations. You're not going to get there without that. If we want to go for net zero emissions, we're not going to have a coal industry of the size that we have today. Indeed, we're not going to have a mining industry of the size we have in 20 or 30 years' time. But we're all trying to avoid these hard choices right now, put our heads below the pillow and help the whole, the whole world gets drowned out. Well, the real world is catching up with us fast. And the real world says, if you don't have enough electricity, if you're not producing enough electricity at a certain time of day, things get shut off. And while we've been able to keep the lights on over the past week for, mm. for your customers, your viewers, the, the facts are that our large factories have had to shut down Quite. over the past week. Yep. Our aluminium smelters have had to turn off just to keep your lights on. And so right now what we're doing as a nation is turning off productive capacity, turning on our, off our ability to make wealth and keep manufacturing jobs here in Australia so that we can keep our air conditioning, our gas heating, yes. our, our stoves on uh, yes. during these times of crisis. This is no I mean, way to run a country. No, I mean, and this, we've got to get return to the country we once had. Yeah, good on. This is the schizophrenia I was talking about. I mean, Madeleine King said, 100% I support the coal industry. New South Wales was built on coal mining. Now, what does that mean in practice? Well, you'll have to ask the Labor Party. We're about to see, I suppose, Alan, and, and right now I suppose we're still in the weathermen's status, weathermen's stage of a new government. There's a lot of new ministers telling us what the weather's like. Uh, this is the stormy clouds on the horizon, according to Jim Chalmers. You know, our nation's electricity system is falling around before our eyes, according to Chris Bowen. They're describing how things are going 
like a weatherman, weatherman does, but they've actually got to be, they're in, minister, they're in government now, they're in the ministry. They've got to start making decisions about what they're going to do. So this is the first test uh, for the Labor Party. Are they going to support reliable coal-fired power or are they going to continue yeah. down these fairy tales with the Greens? This is a choice. We'll see very soon what choice they make. Well, but unfortunately, we'll be living with the consequences of it for at least yeah, three years. Absolutely. Madeline King said, interestingly, whether she chose the words carefully or not, I don't know, that Australia would be exporting thermal coal past 2050. Now, thermal coal, as our viewers most probably know, is burnt for steam to run turbines to generate electricity. Are we going to export our thermal coal so that others can have cheaper electricity? Or are we going to make sure we also use that coal for cheaper electricity for our own people? Well, Alan, this is why I'm against this whole global net zero agenda too. I mean, there's a couple of things. There's a lot of work happening there in Madeleine King's statement. Uh, she actually is admitting that um, the rest of the world isn't going to go to net zero. I mean, if other countries continue to buy our coal post-2050, hang on, I thought I thought they were signing up to net zero emissions as well. But I know Madeleine, would, she's got some common sense. She knows that Japan, that China, that India, that Vietnam, lots of countries through Asia say they're going to do net zero emissions by 2050, but we all know they're not actually doing that, nor will they do that. And so there will still be demand for our coal post-2050. But your point is the key one here, Alan, from our perspective is, are we going to sell our own God-given resources uh, that we have in this country to everybody asunder, but not use it ourselves. I mean, even Europe wants to buy our coal now. This whole net zero agenda is dead. It's all over. It's as dead as disco. Uh, but if we continue down that path, we're just going to shut down our own productive capacity, our own manufacturing jobs. They'll get shipped to other countries overseas. For a while, we'll be able to continue to buy those goods in return, but we're going to eventually run out of money uh, as a country, if we do not invest in the things that make money, that make make things, and get back to that sort of uh, get that, that sort of focus as a nation, can can I just say something to our viewers about those three words, net zero emissions? Now, this is mistaken issue by almost everybody. We're talking about carbon dioxide emissions. Work this out. Get your calculator out. Carbon dioxide is zero point zero four percent of the atmosphere. Of that 0.04%, human beings worldwide create 3%. Got 3% of 0.04%. And then Australia is responsible 1.3% of 3% of 0.0. You can put the decimal points in wherever you like. I can't get mad around the fact that this little invisible gas apparently causes all these problems, Matt. Well, it has caused, it's got a lot to be answered for, uh, the carbon dioxide, but it's not actually the molecules that itself that is doing the damage. It's the Western governments in particular response Correct. to it. It's the climate change policies that are causing Correct. the heartache. I mean, people, uh, I, I don't want to be dramatic, but it is no doubt that people are starving in the world today thanks to misguided, naive, yep. uh, green, net zero, ESG type policies. We have shut down our ability to make fertilisers, to grow food, in Western countries, and now we're running out of food because of the uh, situation where Russia and Ukraine aren't exporting uh, their produce to us again. I mean, good luck to Russia and Russia and Ukraine. But how have we been? How have we allowed, as a Western free countries, how have we allowed a circumstance to arise where just a generation after the Berlin Wall fell, just a generation ago, and now we're, we are apparently dependent uh, on countries in the former Soviet Union to feed ourselves? That's where we've got to, Alan. We cannot feed the world 
without access to Russia and Ukraine who are not putting the same handbrakes and constraints on their fossil fuel production. And, and of course, uh, that uh, is an indictment of the uh, leadership absolutely. and course that we've been governed under over that period of time, and it's got to change. But it's an indictment. You've been fighting this, I've been fighting it in your own government. They were there for nine years. The demonisation of coal. Now we're told, oh, well, it's very difficult to buy coal in New South Wales. I mean, in winter, when solar isn't effective, the market relies on thermal coal, and coal still supplies 60% of the grid's power. How on earth do you replace that? You've got Matt Keane and this New South Wales Energy Roadmap, which says it'll build all these renewables over the next three to four years. Where's this coming from? I, I... Well, look, out. And Alan, look, in fairness to the former government, we did try. We tried to, Angus Taylor tried to invest in coal-fired power plants, gas power plants. Some of those projects that we were getting behind, though, fell over uh, when you might recall Matt Keane and New South Wales government decided yeah. to effectively take over the New South Wales energy market and then put in, uh, put in place these ridiculous rules, which I must say Mark Latham tried to campaign against, ridiculous rules, which effectively allow Matt Keane to support any, as energy minister, any project uh, through transmission, through pricing uh, that he likes. Uh, and that, of course, has deterred investment in, in other sources of energy that Matt Keane doesn't like, uh, like coal. And I also think the teals have been very quiet the last few weeks. Where is Matt Keane exactly, Alan? Yeah. He said a lot about federal <laughs> politics the last couple of months. He's got a lot to say about the candidates that were standing yeah. at the last election. He's actually still the energy minister. Did you know that? He is the treasurer as well now. But he is the energy minister of New South Wales. This, this chaos and dysfunction in our energy market is focused here focused there in New South Wales, and he has absolutely been absent. Try and track him down for me, Alan. Yeah. Someone pin him down and work out, mate, what, what have you done and why have you caused such a mess in Good. one of the once proud energy systems of our Good nation? on you. Matt Canavan, you're a star. I'll tell you what, Matt Keane says he'll build all these renewables in the next three to four years. Yeah, pigs will fly too. Matt, great Can't to wait. talk. There'll be a forum here. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Alan. There he is, Matt Canavan. Digest that. That's real sense, isn't it? Called common sense. Matt Canavan, no Guernsey, no portfolio, but he's going to fight this net zero nonsense, and we will on this program as well. Look, as you know, I spoke a couple of weeks ago about the crisis in flood-ravaged Queensland and New South Wales. Indeed, the Morrison government's response, or lack of it, to the bushfire crisis of 2019 and the floods early this year were no doubt contributing factors in the government's defeat. When I look at these things, or I talk about them, or I write about them, I try to put myself in the shoes of those who've suffered. What would you do if everything you owned was destroyed by flood or fire? What would you say to your children who've lost everything? What would you say to the farmer who's lost all his stock? What would you say to the small businessman who's nothing except the got nothing except the clothes he's standing in? How do you explain this future to your children? How do you evaluate the trauma and mental damage done to people in such communities when mental illness as is an invisible affliction? I mentioned that the Perite government in New South Wales has established an inquiry into the floods. Gladys Berejiklian, who was often afforded saintly status, created a body called Resilience New South Wales, allegedly to lead a whole of government disaster and emergency response, that is from prevention right through to recovery. Well, this resilience New South Wales mob are themselves a disaster. What about the response? Another disaster. The mob is headed by Shane Fitzsimmons, who was formerly the boss of the New South Wales Rural Fire Service, but more often than not seen in a starched shirt and fancy epaulets. Many of these people caught up in the flood disaster got $1,000 an adult and $400 per child. 
That was the starting allocation. But this outfit, Resilience New South Wales, have an annual budget, are you with me? $777 million. The state member for Lismore is Janelle Saffin. She told the inquiry last week that Resilience New South Wales was, quote, institutionally incapable of doing the job. Now, Janelle Saffin won't mind me saying this, but she's 67 years of age. At the height of the flood in Lismore, she and two friends were on the veranda of a home, quote, hanging sort of, she said, on the rafters. And the water was coming up too quickly to stay inside. She said, and I quote, there were three of us. And at some point it was swim or we go under. And I said, come on, we're in. They dived in. The trio managed to make their way to a tyre wedged under a tree and they hung on for dear life, 67 years of age. Amazingly, their mobile phones were working. Janelle saw two people trapped in houses, one a woman who was screaming. Then one of Janelle Saffin's staffers appeared from around the corner in an inflatable canoe. Janelle Saffin, hanging on to a tyre under a tree for dear life, said, we're all right, you go for them. Janelle Saffin, eh, helped out another neighbour. They got him into the canoe and got him to safety. My point is, I think this marvellous woman is entitled to be listened to. She told the inquiry the disaster response headed by the bloke in the starched shirt and fancy epaulets was unfit for purpose. She described it as missing in action in every way and failing to coordinate other agencies. She said the resilience to New South Wales leadership, that is you, Shane Fitzsimmons, was unhelpful, obstructionist, and eventually she refused to deal with them. The Mayor, Steve Krieg, whom we've spoken to, said tellingly, at the height of an actual disaster, it's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job. And that's where resilience really struggled. They had a concept of, well, it's five o'clock and I'm going to go home, unquote. Janelle Saffin told the inquiry that the $777 million Resilience New South Wales were unprepared for a disaster and she had to contact the Premier's office to get other agencies access to evacuation centres. Now, this disaster killed four people, completely flooded and what? pardon me, wiped out thousands of residential, commercial and industrial buildings and damaged hundreds of millions of dollars worth of infrastructure. People are still homeless. Businesses are still with no hope, except their own determination to plough on and kids without everything they had treasured. I'm sure Janelle Saffin would share my recommendation. Wind up Resilience New South Wales, admit it has proven itself to be hopeless Send those who were charged to do a job in Lismore, which they couldn't do or wouldn't do, send them to the soup kitchens and let them learn what it's like to be without a job and give the $777 million to the people of Lismore and other flood victims. Australians are tough. Janelle Saffin is tough. You can cop adversity, but you can't cop bloated, extravagant and insensitive bureaucracies ignoring the urgent plight of others. We're months on and people are still suffering. And I think there but from the grace of God go all of us. Well, the new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has plenty on his plate, but he's also under pressure from many, including his own government MP, Julian Hill, the member for Bruce, to honour a commitment Anthony Albanese gave in opposition when he declared the incarceration in the UK of Julian Assange pending his extradition to the United States had gone on long enough and Mr Albanese, in opposition, wanted Julian Assange freed. Julian Hill 
is a member of the bipartisan Bring Julian Assange Home parliamentary group. And he said, and I quote, I hope one of the first acts of our new cabinet will be to speak up for our fellow citizen and demand the US government drop the shameful prosecution of Julian Assange, unquote. He said the government must stand clear and firm on its principles, including the principle of press freedom. Julian Assange's Australian human rights lawyer in London, Jennifer Robinson, reiterated her plea for the Australian government to use its influence to request the United States to let Assange come home. She saw Julian Assange last week and said his health, quote, continues to deteriorate in prison. Julian Assange is in Belmarsh Prison, disgraceful outfit, where he's been since 2019. It's a maximum security prison in the UK, reserved, do you mind, for violent criminals and offenders. Now, remember, Julian Assange has been imprisoned without any conviction. And within the next three weeks, it said the UK Home Secretary, Priti Patel, is due to decide whether to order his extradition to the United States per instructions by the British courts. Now, I know that people have their prejudices in relation to Julian Assange, but may I respectfully suggest they're often prejudices based on ignorance. A two-part documentary, Ithaca, begins tomorrow night on the ABC at 8.30pm and the following Tuesday, the 14th. It's simply titled Ithaca, A Fight to Free Julian Assange. Now, since Homer's odyssey, Ithaca is a metaphor for the human journey through life, a metaphor for all destinations, the supreme aim that every man tries to fulfil all his life. It's appropriate, therefore, that tonight we talk about this to his brother, Gabriel Shipton. But firstly, this. Julian Assange is an Australian. Whatever your opinion might be, he's one of us. As a senior political figure wrote to me last year, quote, being thrown into jail until he dies because he exposed secrets that the US admits did not cost lives, unquote. Julian Assange professionally is an Australian publisher. He's not accused of hacking. He's the first publisher in history to be charged with espionage. He faces 175 years in prison, all for engaging in regular journalistic activity, basically exposing what he believed was political corruption. One strategist on the Clinton side of things, a bloke by the name of Bob Beckel, actually called for Julian Assange to be assassinated. The Republican Senator Rand Paul has said, quote, the founding fathers would have protected WikiLeaks at all costs, and it's time we inherit their spirit. Well, what has to be said is that Julian Assange did not hack the US records, nor did he assist Chelsea Manning to hack the US servers. She already had access to the documents in question. Indeed, Chelsea Manning took full responsibility for obtaining the documents. All Julian Assange and WikiLeaks did was passively receive information, then assist in protecting Manning as a source and publish the cables, just as the New York Times, The Guardian and other media organisations do. Indeed, Chelsea Manning said, and I quote, although I stopped sending documents to WikiLeaks, no one associated with WikiLeaks pressured me into giving more information. The decisions I made to send documents and information to WikiLeaks were my own decisions, and I take full responsibility for my actions, unquote. But because Julian Assange published as did other media organisations, he's currently in maximum security prison in the UK. As I said, Belmarsh, as a prisoner. 
During the trial of Chelsea Manning, it was confirmed that no US personnel were put at risk or harmed due to the publications. And this Assange case has been going on for over 10 years. Understandably, respected psychiatrists have identified Assange as a person at high risk of suicide. On one occasion on his way to court, he was handcuffed 11 times, strip searched twice, and his case notes were confiscated by prison authorities. In 2010 and 2011, WikiLeaks published material provided by Chelsea Manning, who was born Bradley Manning, a former United States Army soldier who was convicted in 2013 of violations of the Espionage Act after leaking material to the publisher WikiLeaks. She was imprisoned from 2010 to 2017, but then her sentence was commuted by President Obama. In other words, she was pardoned, not so Julian Assange. As I've said, he's been imprisoned in Belmarsh, a maximum security prison in the UK reserved for violent criminals and offenders, imprisoned without any conviction. The former Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce last year defended Julian Assange's right to remain in the UK. Mr Joyce made a very valid point that America, which has been pursuing Mr Assange for years, quote, would never hand over one of their citizens in the form they are asking the UK to hand over one of ours. Said Barnaby Joyce, quote, if he's deported, he should be deported to Australia. Well, appeals are now being made to the Boris Johnson government to stop this Queenslander being sent to America. Barnaby Joyce is right when he said that Mr Assange never stole any files. Bradley Manning did. Quote, Mr Assange did publish them, but that was not a crime in Australia at the time, and Mr Assange was not in the United States. The High Court of England and Wales has now overturned a district court decision from January last year that Mr Assange should not be extradited. The US government has now had that decision overturned and Mr Assange could be extradited to America and put on trial. Well, Gabriel Shipton is the brother of Julian Assange and he joins me tonight. Gabriel, thank you for your time. What is the latest? So, uh, on the 19th of April, uh, the UK magistrate sent uh, the extradition order to uh, Priti Patel, the UK Home Secretary. And so now the extradition order sits with uh, the UK Home Secretary waiting uh, for her to sign it basically and, and order Julian's extradition uh, from the UK. So this is the first time uh, that there is no legal proceeding in the UK. It's in, it's, this case is now entirely political. Uh, it's in the hands of the UK Home Secretary. And so now it's it falls to her uh, to sort of that could happen in a couple of weeks. What, what, yes, what, that, we're what, expecting that by June 20. June 20. What's his health like? Well, at these times, uh, this, you know, he's deteriorating and it has been for the last, you know, three or four years. Uh, at these particular times, this is a very stressful time with this extradition looming over his head. Uh, and yeah, he's not in a good way. What does the documentary seek to achieve? Well, we really set out, uh, you know, the Julian that I know, the Julian, everyone who knows Julian knows that he's a, a gentle, gentle genius, uh, goofy, has a goofy sense of humour, uh, you know, is very supportive to pe the people around him. But there was this sort of disconnect that we saw uh, between the Julian that we knew and the Julian that was uh, often um, represented through the media headlines, through antagonistic interviews and things like that. 
So the documentary really seeks um, to sort of humanise Julian through uh, through the people who love him. Obviously, Julian's in prison, so he can't feature in the film. So we follow Julian's dad, John Shipton, who's my dad as well, and his journey to save his son. Mm. Gabriel, inside the cover of an Australian citizen's passport, the individual is assured that the Commonwealth of Australia will, quote, afford him or her every assistance and protection of which he or she may stand in need. What protection and assistance has your brother received from the Australian government? Yeah, look, um, bugger all, basically. I mean, they've treated him in the past. He's been treated, you know, like like he's a backpacker who's lost his passport, this sort of basic consular assistance uh, that's been provided to him. Uh, in the past, and under the previous governments, um, you know, we're very encouraged uh, by the statements by Alban- Anthony Albanese at his um, at his cabinet uh, cabinet press conference, where he yeah. said uh, foreign policy uh, isn't conducted with a loud hailer. Mm. Uh, when 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 he was asked what he's doing about Julian Assange, now this is a important uh, change in stance by the government. Usually, under the previous governments, Maurice Payne, uh, Scott Morrison. When asked about Julian, they said, yes, we're providing consular assistance and the matter is before the UK courts and we don't interfere in the court proceedings of other countries. Mm. So uh, the Prime Minister is now saying that this is a foreign policy matter and that uh, diplomacy is being conducted yes. uh, and not and won't be conducted through the use of you know, a megaphone. Yeah. Jeslyn Redak, a human rights lawyer, her comments were instructive when she says Australia has been very subservient to the US this is one of their citizens. If you're not going to flex and stand up for your own citizen, when are you? Now, I mean, basically your brother set this WikiLeaks up in 2006. He's a publisher. But the key point is the material was given to his company by Chelsea Manning. She's taken full responsibility for the documents in question. All your brother did was passively, like most journalists, receive passively receive information and protect his source. Uh, Gabriel, isn't that what all media organisations do? Yeah, if you read the indictment, Alan, it, it basically uh, sets out, you know, you're, he's charged with receiving and publishing uh, classified information, which is what journalists do every day. Mm. And one interesting point about Chelsea Manning is she walks free. Uh, her sentence was commuted uh, by President yeah. Obama. So uh, Chelsea the, Manning and, and, ago, and so. Chelsea Manning said sending the documents to WikiLeaks was my own decision. So basically, summing up here, uh, nothing's on. You're waiting for Pretty Patel. It could be three weeks. What are your thoughts? Have you got any inside info? Well, I think you know we. It's really up to the Australian government to to yeah. use their special relationship with the US and the UK. You know, we we are. These are our closest allies. You know, we can ask them, you know, let this bring this guy Absolutely. home. Uh, just pick up the phone, uh, call Johnson Absolutely. or call Biden to drop this thing and, and, and bring Julian home. And I should say to our viewers, Chelsea right. Manning, as I mentioned, uh, has had her sentence commuted, so she's free. WikiLeaks, the publisher, is facing Julian Assange 175 years of imprisonment and being held in a maximum security jail in Britain for violent criminals imprisoned with no conviction. Uh, Gabriel, it's good to talk to you. I've just got to say, you'd have to have a heart of steel and rocks in your heart 
if you didn't simply say there's something seriously wrong here. So my very best to you and your dad and, and we'll keep in touch and let's hope proper justice prevails. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. Not at all. There is Julian Assange's brother, Gabriel Shipton. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Let's hope Anthony Albanese is equal in government to the assurance he gave in opposition. The people in the heartland of the Liberal Party who felt ignored and forgotten for so long will now face another obstacle to their Liberal faith, the already persistent negatives about the new leader, Peter Dutton, and the unproven assertions that there are apparently a whole raft of people to whom he won't appeal. Let me say simply, I'm not in that camp. Dutton's elevation to the leadership has brought cheering from the rank and file dedicated Liberals. The one thing Dutton has that many politicians don't have is ticker. He won't run away from a problem and his announcing of a shadow ministry demonstrates just that. The further cheering you might have heard at the weekend related to the fact that the reputed professional branch stacker and factional heavyweight, whom I've regularly called a lightweight, Alex Hawke, has not been included anywhere in the shadow ministry. No role, no gig. In what is long overdue, Dutton has put Hawke where he belongs, on his political backside. Hawke was up to his eyeballs in the pre-selection debacle in New South Wales, where candidates were installed at the last minute because Hawke, Morrison's so-called right-hand man, was on the mandatory vetting committee of the Liberal Party in New South Wales, Morrison's representative. If Hawke didn't turn up, which he didn't, for months, then candidates couldn't be selected. The fact is, Hawke himself was under siege and has been for some time in his own electorate of Mitchell. So might I add was Susan Lee in her seat of Farrah. But allowing these pre-selections to occur at the last minute meant that Hawke, Susan Lee and Trent Zimmerman were handed the Liberal Party's candidature for their seats, no pre-selection. Yet in early February, the New South Wales State Executive of the Liberal Party rejected a proposal to endorse Hawke and Lee and Zimmerman. Hawke subsequently, I might add, won the seat of Mitchell at the election with a swing against him of almost 10%. The history of Hawke within the Liberal Party is one of manipulation and division. He won pre-selection for the seat in 2007, a seat which had been served honourably and faithfully by Alan Cadman for 33 years. A report in the Hills News of June 2007 said, quote, Hawke was relentless and had the local numbers totally sewn up. The last few years have seen massive branch stacking in all Hills branches, unquote. Well, that branch stacking was still alive in March this year, where the Australian newspaper reported that in relation to Hawke, quote, the New South Wales Liberal Party needs to answer a live question of criminality and motive for political gain, unquote. This related to a matter going back to 2018 at a Borkham Hills branch meeting, where it's alleged 10 Conservative members were prevented from joining the branch after minutes of the meeting were doctored. A complaint to the New South Wales Liberal State Executive, Chris Stone, alleged, quote, attempted fraud by the then branch officials. The report from the Australian newspaper of March this year made the simple point. The Borkham Hills Division, it said, lies within Mr Hawke's Mitchell electorate in Sydney's northwest, and the legal correspondence alleges the Immigration Minister was present at the branch meeting and had failed to say whether the members in question had been accepted or rejected, unquote. Now, these allegations have been alive for some years, that the minutes of that branch meeting held in October 2018 were doctored so that Hawke's faction wouldn't lose its power base. 
Now, control of branches is what, is what Hawke's been about all his life. Yet Morrison promoted this person to a federal ministry. Ten members, along with others present at that meeting in October 2018, have provided statutory declarations that they were officially admitted to the branch, that their admission was voted on, but the minutes lodged with the Liberal Party headquarters indicated they had been rejected. A further report back in 2018 alleged the same Alex Hawke had spent over half a million dollars of taxpayers' money on printing work by a company that donates to the party but doesn't own a printer. And the $500,000 of taxpayers' money went to a printing company run by a fellow who is, quote, the president of the Bella Vista Liberal Party branch, unquote, to print what? For a person in a safe seat, $500,000? What do you reckon? During the same period, Scott Morrison spent $179,000, Tony Abbott $184,000. Alex Hawke spending double, and he's in a safe seat. Why was the money being pushed to a Liberal Party donor? Peter Dutton has done what the Liberal Party should have done, move this bloke out completely. And if the Liberal Party is talking about draining the swamp or cleaning the joint out, Hawke should be the first to go. Peter Dutton has taken a courageous stand, making it quite clear that Hawke is not the kind of person who should, who should be representing the Liberal Party at any level. The Liberal Party needs to clean out those who are infecting the body politic. Peter Dutton has made a courageous start. I have no doubt fair income Liberals are cheering. The rot has got to stop. Well, look, before we go, when Vladimir Putin was elected president of Russia in 2000, the Kremlin's hold over the media tightened. Putin was obsessed with what news agencies were saying about him, so much so that he took control of independent oligarch-owned channels, and now the Kremlin provides editors and producers guidance on what to cover and how. Right now, media outlets and social media networks in Moscow, in Russia, are banned from calling the war in Ukraine a war. Well... It appears in Australian politics, we have our very own form of censorship, and it's coming from those who operate the National Party's social media accounts. That's right. Ever since the disgraceful elevation last week of David Littleproud as leader of the National Party, the party has been in damage control, furiously deleting any pro-Barnaby Joyce and anti-Littleproud comments. Why? Is it because perhaps there was no justification for the change? After all, this vital point, the people who voted for the National Party on May 21 voted for Barnaby Joyce, not Little Proud as leader. They have been betrayed by the political assassins. You only have to look at yesterday's coalition front bench announcement to see what drove this decision. 11 of the 13 who voted for Little Proud got a Guernsey. They didn't vote for the left-wing Little Proud because of his pro-net-zero stance or for his big ideas for regional Australia. He's got none. Now, they voted for him to get a promotion. Just another example of the Nationals putting party before those in the regions who voted for them. And McCormack being appointed Shadow Minister for International Development and the Pacific is something you couldn't make up after a long lunch. Mark my words, Little Proud has anchored the National Party into mediocrity and will risk its relevance, especially when he agrees with virtually all of Labor's climate change policies. Tony Abbott said on the show last week that the coalition only wins when it's a strong alternative to Labor. Little Proud should take note. But what about some of the comments that the Kremlin, oh, sorry, I mean the modern day National Party have been deleting? On Michelle Landry's Facebook page, 
a little proud sycophant she is, she posted the front page headline of him backing net zero, which prompted Kevin to say, what a disgraceful turn of events. How could the Nationals get rid of Barnaby Joyce? On the National Party of Australia's Facebook page, more comments which were wiped, including Heather's, it's nothing but little to be proud of, a big mistake. Barnaby worked so hard, we voted for him as the leader. Morgan then commented, you people have officially lost the plot. Thanks for pushing us more and more to the minor parties. Matthew said of the new leadership team, you won't be holding them to account with little proud in the top job. It'll be hard to tell the difference between him and Albo. One final point. You heard Senator Matt Canavan on the show tonight. He's on regularly. And why? Because he always has something to say which is critical for the future of our nation. No notes, just ideas which improve Australia. He was a very good Minister for Resources and Northern Australia, always talking sense. But because he isn't a little proud stooge, there's no place for him in the shadow ministry. As you heard him say, he wasn't offered, but nor would he have accepted. But there's a spot for McCormack. The National Party is in damage control and it's of their own making. I said it last week and I'll say it again. They will not be able to provide the political support in the bush that Peter Dutton deserves. Well, that's it for me tonight. See you tomorrow night on ADH TV. Show your friends and family how to download ADH on the phone or the television. It's free to do so. Thanks for joining me tonight. Good night.